0: book of leviticus so we continue our summer studies study through this book we find ourselves in chapter 11 today you'll find that on page 88 in the pew bible in front of you if you want to follow along there and would encourage you to follow along as we work our way through this passage this morning uh, i do want to um, say it's good to be back home and uh, praise god for this church and uh, i have. I didn't realize how much I've missed you until it's stepping back here with you and um, God has already done a great nourishment in my soul this morning and I hope he has for you as well. And so it's wonderful to be back after a couple of weeks. I do also want to um, mention if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you might find the passage which we are going to consider in Leviticus 11 somewhat obscure, uh, somewhat strange. I do want you to understand that we also find it strange. Um, We are not often in the book of Leviticus. In fact, this is the first time I've ever studied it. Maybe the first time you've ever heard a series preached through it. We do it not because we find it normal and easily applicable. We do it because we believe it's the Word of God. And we believe it is therefore given to us for our good and for our instruction and for our sanctification. And so though it is somewhat distant from us, uh, I trust God will be pleased to do a good work in us through it. And so consider uh, this morning, Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, I'll read um, some verses 1-8 through and then jump to the end of chapter 11 and the, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Hear now the Word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, "...Speak to the people of Israel, saying these are the things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare... Because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. And you shall not eat any of these, their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. they are unclean to you. Chapter of verse 41: "Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Our Father, we pray that you would indeed, through your word and your abounding kindness to us, make us a holy people. That is, we would be a people that are like you in order that we might display to an increasingly dark world what their Creator is like and the mercy that He would offer them. We confess this morning that You indeed are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May Your people, Hamilton Baptist Church, by Your grace, be a holy people. That we may be a light in this nation whose birthday we celebrate in just a couple of days. We thank You for America. We thank You for the freedom in which we enjoy even now as we consider Your Word. And yet, Father, there is great work that needs to be done in this land. Be pleased to use Your people that we might... Bring your kingdom as our Lord has taught us to pray. Let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The Jewish people have an ancient story, a fable, that was added to their collection of writing called the Apocrypha. The name of the story is called Bell and the Dragon the story of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who worshipped an idol called Bel, B-E-L. And to worship Bel, his priests would place food offerings before this idol every day as a way to feed this God, their God. And and the following day, the food was all gone and everyone assumed, of course, that Bel ate the food in private uh, uh, throughout the evening in his temple. Everyone except, of course, the prophet Daniel. One day Daniel confronted King Cyrus. One day Daniel was confronted by King Cyrus as to why he refused to worship Bel. Daniel said, "You know, I only worship living gods, and there is only one living god, and I don't worship dumb idols." Cyrus replied to him that Bel is certainly alive. After all, he has this voracious appetite. Look at how much he eats every night. And Daniel explains that Bel is just a statue made of bronze and clay and has never eaten anything in his, its entire existence. So this Cyrus just became enraged. And he instructed his 70 priests to place the food offering before Bel. And he declared that if Bel ate the sacrifice that night, Daniel would be executed for his blasphemy. But if the food remained, the priest of Bel would all die. And so they placed the food before the idol. The temple door was locked and sealed. The evening passed. The morning came. The door was open. The seal was broken. And the food was gone. Osiris quickly praised loudly the greatness of his God Bel, But to his utter annoyance, Daniel only laughed. You see, before the temple was locked up, Daniel scattered ashes upon the floor, revealing the priest's footprints and the secret entrance into the table, which they use to eat eat the food themselves. After Daniel explained this to Cyrus, the king executed the priest, and Daniel had the great joy of destroying that idol. We've seen in our study of Leviticus that these offerings that are made to God are often called food offerings. But we have noted, haven't we, already in our study that God doesn't eat them. Right, They're not brought into the tabernacle and gone by morning. In fact, no food is ever brought into God's temple. They're simply burned on the altar outside in the courtyard or eaten by the priest and the worshiper. Now, the portion that is burned symbolically is a, is a way to understand God fellowshipping with them, receiving them as a food offering. But God does not eat. God has never eaten. But people do. Don't they? And as we see in Leviticus 11, God is very interested in what they eat and what they don't eat. Now, as you know, we're working our way through the book of Leviticus. This is our fifth week. I think maybe 13 sermons, God willing, in this book. And, and we have, we've already testified that Leviticus to many people is a chore. It's a burden. It's, it's where you're, your intentions to read the Bible through in a year die, right? They come to Leviticus and Leviticus kills those desires until next year. I want, And I want you to understand, the people of Israel didn't see it that way. It was life-giving instruction that solved the problem of, of God's unapproachable presence. Leviticus answers two questions. The first half, really the first 16 chapters of Leviticus answer the question, how can we live... With this holy king who now has chosen to dwell in the midst of our camp. The second half of Leviticus 17-27 through 27, is not how to live with him, but how to live for him. And so we've been considering how we can live with him. The answer that we've already seen in the book of Leviticus is this word called atonement. Atonement kind of means at one minute to be reconciled. And Leviticus teaches us that there's really two elements of atonement. One, atonement is often discussed in the context of forgiveness, that that we have offended God by our sin, we are indebted to Him, and that we, we, we find that atonement in making a ransom payment to Him through a burnt offering. But there's a second element of atonement that Leviticus is helping us understand, one that I think is very minimized, and certainly is in my life until I've had time to study this book, and it is the idea of defilement. That we not only indebt ourselves to God through our sin, we actually defile ourselves. And and even defile God because of our sin. And in order to find atonement, we must be purified. And therefore, God gave them the purification offering, sometimes called the sin offering. And so, in other words, sin does two things. Sin indebts us to God, requiring His forgiveness. And sin pollutes us, requiring God's purification. Now, this is not just an Old Testament concept. The New Testament uses this as well. You might be familiar with 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to do two things, right? To forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It first deals with both our debt to God and our, our lack of purity with God. We even sing about this in the hymn Rock of Ages. We sing to God, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath. And make me pure. You see, maintaining purity was very important to God. It's very clear in this book. Maintain the purity of His house, His courtyard, was very important to Him. We will read in Leviticus 15, verse 31, You shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling My tabernacle that is in their midst." And so keeping that sacred space undefiled was of primary importance to God. Right? Keep, and they would do this by making sure that people who were unclean or defiled did not come close to God in their uncleanness. Another way to say this is that God was, gave them the laws in order that his people might become holy so that they can dwell close to God. And we come to this section of Leviticus from chapters 11 through chapter 15. It's really about how to make a holy people. That God wants His people to be holy, to be distinct. And, and as we study these laws that, as we'll, I'll mention in a moment, no longer apply to us. I want you to be thinking in your mind, how is it that we today as followers of God are to be distinct? What should the world think of us? Not what does the world think of us? That's a perhaps a different question. What should the world think of Christians? should they not think that we are the most kind and joyful and patient and compassionate and generous and humble of all peoples? Should they not think that we are those who sacrifice for the oppressed? We are those who are fully committed to our families. We are those willing to suffer for the stranger. We are those who are devoted to God. In a word, should they not think of us as holy? Holy. God wants us to be holy. He wanted His people always to be holy as we see here. He wants them to be distinct, set aside, even in what they eat as we come to chapter 11 and we see the dietary laws that God gave to His people. I want to break this sermon down in three parts. The first part is we're just going to explain these laws. I will spend... Probably the bulk of my time, if you're keeping time this morning, just please know a um, bulk of my time will be on point one. Don't panic because point two and point three will be um, much quicker as we move along. So let's consider, first of all, that these food laws, uh, uh, let's explain them. The food laws explain. Now, every culture divides the animal kingdom. We do in many ways. We, um, we divide the animal, animal kingdom based upon what they eat, right? We have carnivores and herbivores and omnivores. We divide the animal kingdom based upon where they live. We have marine animals and land animals. We divide them based upon species. We have mammals and birds and reptiles. We divide them based upon when they're active, nocturnal and so forth, right? We're, we divide the animal kingdom. Every culture divides up the animal kingdom. The Jews were no exception, but they divided the animal kingdom based upon what was edible, what they could eat. Clean animals, they could eat. Unclean animals, they could not eat. And we see this, if you spend time this week looking at Leviticus 11, it's extensive as he goes over all the different types of animals. But note that this is not new to the people of Israel who are now camped at the foot of Sinai receiving the covenant. If you remember Genesis 6, remember Noah? He was to take one pair of every unclean kind of animal and seven of every clean animal. So this has evidently been known to God's people for quite some time in leviticus 11 we have the greatest detail given and it's really broken up in five different categories of animals we begin with walking animals and then swimming animals then flying animals then dead animals then swarming animals and so begin considering the walking animals we'll see this in verses 2 through 8 as well as 26 through 27 look in verse 2 speak to the people of israel saying these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, verse 4, among those that chew the cud or, or, that's the key, part the hoof, you shall not eat these. And then it goes on to list the number of animals. So in order to eat a land animal, in order for it to be clean, it has to do two things. It has to, one, chew the cud. That is, it will swallow its food without chewing it, and then at its leisure bring it back up from its stomach and chew it up. And it number two has to have a parted hoof, right? It, it, um, it, so it's uh, a horse, for instance, does not have a parted hoof, but a cow does, a sheep does. Uh, A goat does. Those are the animals in which they could eat. And so you'll read on, a camel is unclean. They could not eat a camel because it it chews the cud, but it does not part the hoof. And a pig is unclean because though it parts the hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. And later you'll find out that animals with paws, in case you're wondering, are unclean as well. And so dogs and cats are off the table. Okay. Uh, The next group of animals that you see are swimming animals, verses 9 through 12. These you may eat. Of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat, but anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales, of the swarming creatures in the waters and the living creatures that are in the waters, it is detestable to you. So it has, fish have to have two things. Once again, they have to have both fins and scales. So catfish are out, right? Amen. There's, there's, uh, they have fins, but no scales, Okay. And all those nasty oysters that some of you weird people eat, those are out, right? Shrimp, lobster, some, some of the good stuff, those are out, right? Okay, well, okay. then we move on to flying creatures. In verse, you see this in verse 13 through verse 23. You Note know, verse 13. And these you shall detest among the birds. You sh- they shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, and it goes on and on. In fact, less than half the birds listed, we actually can identify that we actually know what he's um, talking about, what kind of birds these are. It seems like most of the birds that are listed as unclean are those that feed on the flesh, whether birds of prey or, or scavengers. We do know that uh, you could eat chicken or quail or those type of birds that would be legitimate. We move on to flying insects in verse 20. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable, yet among the winged insects that go on all fours you may eat those that have a jointed leg, jointed legs above their feet, with which to hop on ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. So in order, to, if you want to eat an insect, um, it, it, it can't just be a flying insect, so like butterflies are out, and it can't just be a crawling insect, so roaches are out and things like that. All right, It has to be a hopping insect. So grasshoppers and locusts and those type of things. And by the way, in the Middle East, that's a major portion of their current diet, Um, grasshoppers. Many people still eat um, grasshoppers and locusts. In fact, uh, I took five of my children backpacking in May, and we actually ate some grasshoppers uh, while we were backpacking. And um, they are not very tasty, I'll just tell you that. Um, I don't know, they need some honey or something, or uh, I don't know what they need. But uh, evidently you were allowed to eat them back in that day, okay, uh, the fourth category is the the dead animals so look at verse twenty four and by these you, th- and by these you shall become unclean, whatever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening and, w- and you can read on, and what he 's explaining is if you Listen, if you touch an unclean animal, like if you ride a camel, that doesn't make you unclean. The animal is unclean, but touching it does not make you unclean. But if the unclean animal dies and you touch its carcass, that will make you unclean. And I, I think it's most likely because death is a contradiction to God's purpose. Death exists because of sin and whoever touches it, therefore, contracts a state of uncleanness and is not fit in order to draw close to God in that state. Lastly, we have these swarming creatures, as you see in verse 29. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, and so forth. So I, I don't know what a swarm of mole rats is like, um, but I can imagine that would be unclean. Um, I, I think what, when he says swarming, doesn't mean a lot. He means things that kind of dart and dither in an unpredictable fashion. And uh, he says those things are unclean. And if they're corpses, sometimes these animals you could read on, get into your house. And if they're corpses, you find it like a dead mole rat in a pot. that pot is now unclean. It, whatever it touches is unclean. Okay. And so those are the f- kind of five categories of clean and unclean animals. Of course, you're all wondering why, right? I mean, what is the point? This seems very strange and crazy. Well, let me give you three reasons why God gave these laws. And perhaps you might not think them so crazy after all. First of all, the food laws are given so that they can draw near to God. Food laws are given for worship. And you've noticed that he's talking about clean and unclean and how these things will make you clean and unclean. And you hear words like defiled and detestable. You're going to get a lot more of that in Leviticus, by the way. clean The words clean and unclean are mentioned 191 times in this book. 134 of those times are just in chapters 11 through chapters 15. Half the references to clean and unclean in all the Bible are found in the book of Leviticus. And so I think it's going to be helpful. We're just going to pause here for a moment and try to figure out. This will help us in the coming sermons. What does he mean by clean and unclean and so forth? these are God is giving his people uh, the idea of that they have a ritual status. And I've done my best to kind of create a graph there on the back of your note sheet. And so you might want to pull that out and turn that over. And um, I want to explain to you that God is going to um, give us the instruction in the book of Leviticus that everything in the world, everything and everyone is either holy or common. So everything and everyone fits in one of those two categories: holy, that is specifically set apart and devoted to God, or something that's common. Now, of all the common things, you can break down into two other categories: everything that is common is either clean or unclean and, and moreover, we will find out that you can move through these ritual states. so if you're clean and you want to make something's clean, you want to make it holy you would sanctify it. Or if something's holy and it becomes common, it's become profaned. And if something is clean and it becomes unclean, you've polluted it or defiled it. But you could take something unclean and you could clean it. Most of the time, some things are permanently unclean, like a dead body. But if you take something unclean and you clean it, you've cleansed it. Okay? And, and this, I, I think, if you put this in your Bible, we're going to be referring to this for a couple of weeks in our study of Leviticus. It's going to be very helpful as we understand what is God trying to teach them in all these ritual status. Well, the first thing is that you need to understand is that these ritual status that God gives them is often not, not the same as a moral status. And what I mean by that, it doesn't. if you become unclean, that's not necessarily bad. Right? What, what pollutes and defiles? Well, if you read the book of Leviticus, you'll find out, well, certainly sin pollutes you adultery homosexuality murder all that will make you unclean but so does childbirth so does sexual intimacy so does skin disease and preparing a dead body for burial that will all make you unclean all those things are good it's good to have a child it's good to be intimate with your spouse and yet these things still will make one unclean. It, it's not a, a, a statement on their, their righteousness or their, their morality. In fact, often it will be wrong not to become unclean. Right? Somebody has to prepare a body for burial. To not do so would be wrong. This is not often about morality. I think the better analogy would be to understand that the state of uncleanness is more like becoming sick or dirty, not unrighteous. And so if some, someone is dirty or sick, right, they're not fit to be in God's presence. For instance, um, my, my kids, when they eat dinner, they become defiled. Okay. Um, and some of you understand that, right? That, that is, they become unclean. And they are no longer fit to move into other parts of the house. Right. In fact, often they are sent outside the camp. Right. In order that is outside in order to be clean. Right. This is not an issue of morality. It's an issue of fitness or appropriateness. It would not be appropriate in the state in which they are to put them on the couch. Right. They have first to be cleansed. And so when God is talking about cleanliness laws, he's not. He's often not talking about morality. He's just saying you're not fit to be close to me in that state. Another example might be, listen, you, you can't go into the hospital and hold a baby if you have the flu. It's not an issue of morality. You're just not fit to be there. And by the way, if you want to perform surgery in a hospital, it's not enough simply to be healthy. You have to be sterilized. To use the analogy, in other words, you have to be holy. Right. And so just as your physical state is going to determine what you can do and where you can go in a hospital. So your ritual state will determine what you can do and where you can go amongst the people of God. So who can enter God's house? Who can draw near to God? Only those who are what? Holy. Only those who are set aside, set apart for God, priests and holy objects. Now, the clean people, the, the normal state of Israel, they could come into the courtyard, they can draw to God's presence, but they could go no farther. Now, if you're unclean, you could not come close to God. You couldn't come in the courtyard. You're usually isolated or sent away because the unclean and the holy can never meet. Right? I, I don't know. if you ever tried to jump a car and you switch the cables, right? And sparks begin to fly everywhere. That's what happens when the unclean comes in the presence of God who is holy. And so they would be sent outside away from God until they are cleansed. And you could cleanse yourself, as we'll see in the coming weeks. There's many ways. It all depends upon how unclean you are. You could cleanse yourself with a sacrifice or anointing of oil or blood or shaving or bathing or laundering or passage of time or changing your clothes or any combination of those. But this is all about your your ability to approach God. God will not dwell with defilement. See, what this is answering is how can they dwell with this king? He's a holy king. And the the laws are given. How can they draw near to him? I think this is important. The reason why I'm pausing here is you need to understand the laws of Leviticus, the laws of the Mosaic covenant are not given to save the people. They are not given that they might obey them in order to find salvation. The people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament or in the New Covenant are all always saved by grace through faith. Genesis uh, Genesis fifteen six Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? He was saved by faith, not I, Abraham obeyed the law and therefore he was saved. And so God has redeemed this people out of bondage. Through the shed blood of the Passover lamb, he has, if you will, made them clean and he gives them the laws of Leviticus, not to save them, but to sanctify them, not to make them clean, but to make them holy. And therefore, the laws of Leviticus are very similar to the commands we find in the New Testament. Certainly, we have a far greater privileges under the new covenants. We have access to God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, the laws in the new covenant, as well as the laws in the old covenant, are always designed to sanctify his people so that they might become more and more holy. This is the goal of God's redemption. Why did God redeem Israel? Exodus 19, 6 is such an important verse. God brings them out of Egypt. They stop at the mountain and God says, okay, we need to talk. Let me explain to you. And he says to them, he says, if you obey, you shall be saved. It's not what he says. Exodus nineteen six. If you obey me, you will be a holy nation. If you obey me, you will be distinct and set apart. You will begin to shine like me. In fact, we don't need to go to Exodus. Just look in Leviticus eleven verse forty four. Look what he says: "For I I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself therefore and be holy." Notice the order: I'm your God. Right? That's established. What Now what? I've redeemed you, verse 45, he says. Now what? Therefore, be holy. Right? Redemption comes, then holiness. Salvation comes, then obedience. Just as God has made us children of God in order that we might be holy. Now here's the question. Why does God want them to be holy? The same reason he wants you to be holy. So that you might have deeper, more satisfying fellowship with him. You might approach him. Leviticus is all about how can I draw close to God? How can I have a deeper fellowship with the God who dwells in our midst? The goal of holiness then and now is that we might know God in a greater and deeper level. And listen, I understand we have access to the Holy of Holies through the shed blood of Christ. We don't want to push the analogy too far. But is it not true that the more you obey God, the more you enjoy the delight of His presence? And the more you sin, the more distant He feels from you. And so we ought to read, I think, the dietary laws as they did Not this unbelievable burden, but this gift from God. As He says to Him, you want to draw close to Me. You want to come near. And then this is how you might do so as you grow in likeness of Me. See, the food laws are given so that they can draw near to God in worship. But there's a second reason. The food laws are given so that they can be distinct from the nation's. It's given for worship, but it's also given for mission. Now the question is, why these animals? Why is a why can you eat a sheep and a grasshopper, but not a shrimp and a pig? Right? Now there are I've read at least about two dozen different explanations. Some say because the unclean animals are unhealthy. That's simply not true. And by the way, Jesus tells us eat anything. So if they are unhealthy, why would Jesus tell us to eat it? Some say it's, it's cultural. It's just a kind of a Food taboos, right? You could go to the East and you go to China and they'll serve you dog without thinking twice. We, we would be somewhat taken back by that. You go to India and you eat a hamburger, they would be taken back by that because they worshiped cows. And so maybe it was just cultural, some people suggest. I think the answer is actually not so hard to find. I think it's found in verse 45 of chapter 11. Why, why these animals? He says here, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, we've already said holiness helps us in our worship to draw near to God, but holiness also is this idea of being distinct and separate. And this is more clear in, when you get to Leviticus 20. So I want you to turn there. You'll keep your finger in your Leviticus 11, but look in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 23. God, I think, gives us the clearest explanation as to why the food law is here in this passage. As he says, I want you to notice how many times he uses the word separate or separated. Leviticus 20, verse 23. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore, be, you shall therefore separate clean beasts from unclean beasts, an unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which crawls on the ground, for I have set apart you for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You see, it's, it's, the food laws are not about health or or what you know help on how to choose dinner. They're about being different they're about being distinct their diet gave them an identity in, in fact we know that the the canaanites um, they would eat pigs and dogs we know that the arabs would eat camels and and israel the sons of israel didn't because they god says I'm, I'm i'm distinguishing you from those nations i'm setting you apart and the food laws is is kind of identified who they are just as today if you don't eat meat well like part of your identity is a vegetarian Well, they didn't eat anything unclean. That would identify them as the Lord's. Remember Daniel, for instance, in Babylon. He says, I'm not going to eat this pagan food, right? He wants to be distinct from the nations, and this is what God is trying to do. He's trying to distinguish this people. And every time they ate, every time they sat down for dinner, they would be reminded that they are to be separate from the world. That they are, if you will, to be a holy people. The food laws was this wall of separation between Israel and the nations. And I think it's important to note that, that the food laws only deals with meat. Do you notice that? It never says, okay, you know, broccoli's clean, but br- Brussels sprouts are unclean. It never deals with vegetables or fruit or anything of that sort. It only deals with meat. The reason why is in these cultures, if you would ever eat meat, it would always be first sacrificed to a god. Meat was always consumed in the context of worship. We even see that in the New Testament days when in Corinth, remember, they they would go to the market and want to buy meat, but the meat was first sacrificed to an idol and they were unsure. Can I eat this meat or should I not eat this meat? Because the the meat was always identified within the context of worship. And we get to the book of Revelation, interestingly enough, in chapters 2 and verse 14, in one of Jesus' letters, he says, some of you hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus is referring to the story in Numbers 25. I don't know if you remember this. Remember Balaam tried to curse God's people, but God wouldn't let him. So he went back to King Balak and he said, this is what you do. I can't curse them, but this is what you do. You get, you get the people of Israel to eat with your people, the Moabites. You get them to eat with you. And if they eat with you, they'll start worshiping your gods. And if they start worshiping your gods, they'll start marrying your daughters. And if they start marrying your daughters, they'll become just like us. And you know what happened? Exactly what Balaam said. You read it in Numbers 25. The people of God lost their distinction, became assimilated amongst the Moabites. And so God, God says, resist the food of the nations and it was built in protection to keep them from becoming assimilated to the world that they might be distinct and set apart and holy. Now we, of course, listen, we, we are to engage the nations, are we not? We, we are to, uh, we'll talk about later, we are to eat with the nations, with the world. But we need to be careful how close we become to the world, do we not? Second Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And then he goes on to quote Leviticus chapter 26. Be careful to maintain your distinction from the nations. The third reason the food laws are given is that the food laws are given so that they would submit to God in all of life. And what God is teaching them is that God is indifferent about nothing. He's interested in every aspect of their life and every time they ate, sat down and ate meat, they were reminded that they are to submit to God, that God was in control even of such mundane things as food, that God is not something we give our, our Sundays to or our Saturdays as they would, but all of life was devoted to them. In fact, what God is teaching them is you cannot divide the secular from the sacred. In God's mind, everything is sacred. Everything you do, everything you eat... God is interested in it all and and he's teaching them that they cannot say just as you and I cannot say, okay, you could tell me to do this, but you stay out of my life over in this area. God says, no, I'm going to get involved in every area of your life. Even so mundane as to what you eat or what you watch on television or how you spend your money or what you do with your time. So I want you to devote all of your life to my authority. And imagine what this would be like. Could you imagine living like this? It's just not meat. It's everything. If you... It just. I mean, it might be a good experiment to try this, go around for a day and identify, okay, that's clean and that's clean, right? That's unclean. i got to stay away from that. That's holy. I should give reverence to that. Oh, clean, clean, unclean, unclean, clean. Constantly thinking about God's estimation of the reality around them. We think things are neutral, And not important, God is interested in every aspect of our life. And He is teaching His people this very clearly here in these food laws. As we seek to understand why He gave them. But interestingly enough, as we've already suggested, that all these food laws have been set aside. They've been abolished. My second main point this morning, and we'll move on quickly from here, is that the food laws have been abolished. They've been abolished by none other than Jesus. In Mark chapter seven, Jesus is having a conversation with religious leaders and he says to them, do you not know that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Right? He's talking about food. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And Paul, and Mark adds this, this word, thus he declared all foods clean. So I tell you this morning, based on the authority of God's word, my brothers and sisters in Christ, eat what you want. Okay? It's all clean. Right? So we had dinners on, on the grounds a month ago, and we ate pork and pork and pork to the glory of God, right? Um, amen. Okay? All right. Uh, so we are to, it's all been set aside. But the question is why? I mean, why do they have it under the Mosaic covenant? But now under the new covenant, we no longer have the food laws. Well, remember the food laws were, one of the points of the food laws was to divide the people of God from the nations, to set up this wall between them. And we get to Acts chapter 10 and Peter's praying on his roof and the Bible says that Peter became hungry. And while Peter was hungry, the scripture tells us Peter saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. That's Leviticus 11. Okay, And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is impure or unclean. I can't eat that. Those are unclean. And God says to him, and the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call unclean or impure. Now the point was not to give Peter instructions for lunch. Because as soon as that vision ended, there was a knock at the door. And who was there but a couple of Gentiles? And they said, Peter, our, our, our boss, our leader, Cornelius, a Gentile, wants you to come to his house. Now, it is forbidden. By, by custom in this day, for a Jew to enter into a Gentile's house. But Peter goes and he arrives at Cornelius' house, comes in, and he explains to him why he came into his house, saying, "You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. But God has shown me that what I should not call that I should not call any man impure or unclean." And then Peter preaches, tells them about Christ, as Craig read for us this morning. And Cornelius and his whole house are saved and are baptized. And Peter begins to declare that God has abolished the barrier between Jew and Gentile. For which I say, Amen. Because I once was impure and unclean to the people of God. And I am by God's grace no longer and you are as well god has set that aside you see the food laws set up this barrier and since god no longer distinguishes jew from gentile they are all one in christ galatians 3:28 the dietary laws are now obsolete in fact they are even harmful we are not to make these distinctions between jew and gentile that covenant is over now there is one people under god from every tribe language and nation and so we should not separate ourselves from the nations like the Jewish people did their mission was if you will if i could put it this way was we're going to be holy nations come and see our mission is not to call the nations to come and see our mission is to go and tell right we are to go and be among them and proclaim who god is and how he has made a way for them to be reconciled we are to be with them but not of them we are to be among them but distinct from them right distinct in our holiness and and that doesn't have to do with food laws it has to do with our 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 righteousness, our morality. Because sometimes clean and unclean is a moral category. Remember Isaiah who encounters God and he says, woe to me for I am a man of unclean lips. He's not talking about the food that he ate. He's saying my mouth brings forth sin and it's unclean. And we should seek to be a clean people. That is a people devoted to God in righteousness and godliness. Not that we can build ourselves up and look down upon others, but that we rejoice in the grace of God for the work He has done and show people another way to live. In fact, in that same story in Mark 7, when Jesus declares all food clean, He explains that food doesn't defile, but I'll tell you what does. What comes out of a person is what defiles him, the Lord said. For out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. My brothers and sisters, by God's grace to the work of the Holy Spirit, we must repent of this uncleanness. We must be a holy person. People, A people devoted in our obedience to God. And I think as if there's ever a time for the people of God to be distinct, is it not now? It is clear to us all, isn't it, that the majority of our land has rejected its Maker and the Savior which He has provided. Therefore, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And that's what you were like. But as He who, is holy, as he who called you is holy, you will also be holy in all your conduct so that we might shine as a light to our neighbors. They might disagree with the beliefs we hold. But wouldn't it be phenomenal if they could not deny the beauty of our lives as we seek to be like our Lord, forgiving our enemies, committed to our spouses, generous with our lives, even consider it with how we eat. So we consider third and last this morning how we might apply these ideas of eating to our lives under the new covenant. Now, I've been preaching for 19 years. I think this is the first time I've ever preached on food. Right? Probably, it might be the last. So I'm going to take advantage of this, if you will. A um, handful of minutes I have left. I think God has a lot to tell us about how to eat. Certainly not the, the dietary restrictions. But if I can quickly this morning give you seven principles that you might apply some of them to your lives as you consider your relationship with food as you seek to be a holy follower of Christ. Number one, I think some of us need to eat less. Right? The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, and verse 19, identifying a group of people whose God is their belly. And the Bible warns us of the sin of gluttony. We need to exercise self-control and not let our appetites control us. I remember in the years I was a youth pastor, I would take my teens on mission trips and we would be serving and 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 without fail, almost every day a group of them would come and say, We're hungry. Right. And my response for the seven years I was a youth pastor was the same. So what? Let's serve. Okay? It's okay if you're hungry. That will not end your life. It might be even good for you to be hungry for a little bit. And I think we might show obedience to God by pushing away from the table and say, no, I will not let my appetite control me. I will follow God. Some of you might need to eat more. Right? We live in a culture, especially in Loudoun County, that is so obsessed with image and beauty that it becomes a God to us. And we count every calorie we eat and make sure I'm eating this kind of calorie and not that kind of calorie. And I just want to suggest to you that Jesus ought to be far more important to you than your appearance. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27, if you are invited over for dinner, quoting, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions of conscience. Don't count its calories. Receive it as a gift that it is. Number three, there are times for all of us when we should not eat. That that is, we should fast. Jesus assumes we will fast. He gives us instructions on how to fast. When we fast, often during the meal times, we have uh, this block of time which we can devote ourselves to pursuing God, to prayer. Often the hunger pains will draw us, remind us that God is able to satisfy us far more than food, that He is more important to us than food. Is fasting part of your devotion to Christ? You do. If you're a member of Hamilton Baptist Church, you know that at least two, three times a year we call for church-wide fasts as we devote ourselves to prayer. Do you join us when we do that? Number four, we should use food for mission. As we've learned in our study of Luke's Gospel, which we'll return to in the fall, Jesus is constantly eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and Pharisees. Why? So that He might enter into their lives and bring them into a relationship with God. Or Zacchaeus, we'll consider him in Luke 19 as we resume. Jesus wants to bring Zacchaeus to faith, and what does he do? He invites him out to lunch, right? More specifically, Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus's for lunch, right? In order that he might break bread with this man and tell him about the mercy of God that covers sin. So Israel was to separate from nations. We are to do the opposite. We are to befriend our non-Christian neighbors in love so we can reach them for Jesus. My question for you is, when is the last time you've had a neighbor over for dinner? When's the last time you've had people in our community and you said, would you like to come to our house and, and, and eat with us? Tuesdays, 4th of July, maybe some of you will be barbecuing. When's the last time you had a community barbecue and just invited everybody? Hey, I'm going to be grilling hamburgers at two o'clock. Why don't you all come over that you might break bread with one another? It's just not the model that our Lord has given us. And yet we are so withdrawn and we just want to be with our people. We need to engage the nations in love, our neighbors in compassion. Number four, five, use food for fellowship. Acts chapter two says they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble heart. Breaking bread unites people together. We should be in each other's homes often and repeatedly sharing meals with one another. I asked you when's the last time you have brothers and sisters from this church into your house to eat dinner together. Community groups, you should be eating together routinely as part of your, your efforts to grow in community and be bound to one another. I think, I'm not being legalistic about this, but should we not have people in our home at least monthly? at least once, one out of 30 days, have a brother and sister, a family over to our house so that we could get to know them, that we could be, be united over a meal in the love of Christ. Number six, we should use food to love. If eating something harms somebody else, don't do it. Right? Love others more than your belly. The issue was in Corinth. Some thought eating that meat sacrificed to those idols was a sin. Paul says it's not a sin. Idols are nothing. Right? You go to someone's house, they give you that food, eat it. Don't worry about it. But he says, but if eating causes somebody else to stumble, stop eating it. Because you ought to love your brother more than the desire to eat. Romans 14, verse 15, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ has died. Lastly, number seven, use food for worship. We do this, I think, when our meals are marked by Thanksgiving. We do this when we intentionally consider food as a gift from God. We need to, I think, pause and, and praise God for the meals in which He gives us. Now, I know we all do this. Don't we all have our prayer or our blessing before the food? But I think it should be real and intentional that we are truly giving thanks for the food in which God has, has given, the gift that He is. God is constantly giving us gifts. It's, you're going to eat well this today, aren't you? I mean, we're all going to feast today by the world's standards. And it's all God's gift. I mean, go, go peel an orange to the glory of God. I mean, it's beautiful and it smells sweet and it's prepackaged and you take off the wrapping and it's already sliced up for you, right? And it's all for God's glory. He gives that to you. You might rejoice in it. Don't let that be routine. You know, uh, Craig prayed for the work that we have in Ghana. and This will be our third trip to Ghana this year. Um, I was there in, in earlier this year, and you know, I, I, I was talking to Pastor Paul, and he said there are people in his church that daily do not know what they'll eat. Like literally, they wake up in the morning and there is no food to eat. But when they get food, they thank God for it. You and I have an abundance of food. Should that make us, therefore, less thankful or more? I think we ought to be far more thankful for all that God gives us. Use this food as a way to draw your heart to God, to worship Him. Of course, we do this in the Lord's Supper as we nourish our souls on the sacrificial death of Jesus. In fact, my friends, all these food laws, you know what they all pointed to? They all pointed to Christ. They all pointed to our Lord. The Bible says in Colossians 2, verse 16, Do not let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink. These are a shadow of that which was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The clean foods pointed to Jesus, for He is, if you will, the clean food we are to eat, to nourish ourselves on. Jesus Himself said in John 6 and verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And talking about his flesh, Jesus is saying, "I'm giving myself up to be crucified, so that sinners like Stephen, Carn, and the rest of you will have an opportunity to receive the grace of God. That Jesus would give up his flesh, not because he deserved to die and to bear the wrath of God, but because I do for eternity." And there he would take God's wrath upon himself and and be raised from the dead three days later and announce as the victorious King of kings, the one who has conquered death itself, if you will submit your life to me in faith, you will turn from your sin and surrender yourself to me, you by my grace will be saved forever and ever. He said, the bread that I give For the life of the world is my flesh. Have you laid hold of Christ by faith? Are you feasting upon Him that you might be saved? My hope is that we all would leave here not with our bellies drawing us to food, but with our souls drawing us to the living bread which is the Son of God. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful for our Lord. And the work that he has done. We, we delight in food. It is certainly your gift. And we delight even more, I think. All joking inside, it is true. We delight that these laws have been set aside. That we might enjoy the abundance which you have created. We thank you for that. But let our greatest delight be found in Christ. And may we submit all of our lives, including what we eat, how we eat, when we eat, with whom we eat, to our Lord. That we might be a holy people who seeks to spread Your kingdom and to glorify our risen King. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.